there, marketing friends. It's Misty here. I am thrilled to introduce you to someone I met a few years back. His name is Bob Hoffman, and he is the self-proclaimed chief aggravation officer at the Type A Group. Bob's going to walk you through his credentials on the show, but he is a teacher turned writer turned advertising exec, and he knows the advertising craft at a deep level. He's got lots of big ideas about what we as marketers need to take note of. I personally met Bob at a conference and he opened my eyes to some pretty big contrarian points of view. He called them delusions and talked about how delusional we all are as marketers. Believing in the role of brand and digital and even the importance of millennials, Bob takes a different point of view and he really makes you think. To prepare for this interview, I read his latest book, Advertising for Skeptics, and it had me laughing out loud. He is hilarious, quick-witted, and passionate, and I'm so happy to bring him on the show to share his points of view. I'll see you on the other side. Well, let's start at the beginning. I want to know your story. I tried my darndest to find out about you, Bob, and there's just not a lot about your background on the internet. So tell me how you came up in the world. I try to keep my personal life as personal as possible. Anyway, uh, I, I grew up in New York City. Okay. Went to Brooklyn College. Out of college, my first job was as a teacher. I was the world's worst teacher. I hated teaching. And so I was terrible at it. And uh, I did it for a few years. I knew it wasn't for me. And I ran into a friend of mine from college one day, just by chance. And I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was working in advertising. Kind of was interested in writing. It sounded romantic to be a writer. He said, you would be really good at that. I said, so what do I do? So he told me what to do, and I put together a sample portfolio. Nice. I went, I went to see a headhunter in New York, and she told me I'd never get a job. Said okay. My stuff, <laughs> said my stuff was terrible. So now I'm a bum, and this guy says I can get it. I would be good in advertising, and this woman tells me I'm never going to get a job. But once someone tells me I can't do something, I have to do it. I started looking for writing jobs. The first job I got was in Greenwich Village in New York at an adult publisher, book (laughs) publisher. And uh, this was a place on, it was on 6th or 7th Avenue near near West 4th Street, and it was above a gym. And there were like three writers, so (laughs) novelists, three novelists. Hilarious. And uh, and I was one of them, and I lasted one day. Oh, my Uh, gosh. So that was my first entry into writing as a profession. And then I kept looking for jobs in the paper, and I found uh, uh, a job, uh, Panasonic, the uh, electronics company, was looking sure. for, a, for a writer. They had a large in-house agency, and I got a job writing there. Okay. And I knew nothing about advertising. Mm-hmm. And I just sat quietly and listened and learned. And I got a few good samples writing there. And then moved out to San Francisco after two years at Panasonic and immediately got a job in a small agency. And I was, uh, once again, I still knew very little about advertising, but I knew enough to fake my way into a job. And was that a copywriting role? That was a copywriting job. And I wrote there for a few years and Mm -hmm. I started to do some pretty good stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they promoted me and pretty soon I was the creative director. 
we started to do good work and we started to get business and we grew and we grew and pretty soon we were the largest independent agency in San Francisco. Amazing. And that was until Hal Riney came along and he, genius and he blew right by us. But anyway, for a short period, we were we were on top. And then we were bought by an international and Australian agency that went public and was going international. They were called Mojo. I became CEO of their U.S. operation. And I didn't like it. I, I didn't like working for other people. I was used to sure. working for myself. Right. So after two years of that, I had a three-year contract with them. After we negotiated a way for me to get out. And uh, I think they were just as happy to get rid of me as I was to leave there. So it was pretty amicable. I started my own little creative services company. And I did that for three years. And that was great. That was very lucrative. But after three years of that, I got lonely. I missed the agency environment. In those days, agencies were great places. They were terrible places to work, but great places to hang out. Sure. <laughs> and so I missed the hanging out part. I went back into the agency business with a, a fellow named Roger Lewis, and we started Hoffman Lewis, and we did very well. I was there till 2013 when I retired. And yeah. when I retired, I figured I was done with advertising, but I kept my blog going because it was fun to write. Sure. And, uh, and somehow I got invited to speak at Advertising Week Europe. And I went there and I gave a talk and it went crazy. And it launched a speaking career for me, which uh, has been fantastic and has led to me writing some books. And uh, the most fun of it is I've gotten to travel all over the world and talk. It's been my second career as a speaker slash writer it hasn't been as lucrative as my first career, but it's been more rewarding psychically. It's, sure. uh, it's more interesting, yeah. All right, Bob, I want to back up just a minute, though. Okay. Tell me about the transition from being a creative director to an agency leader. How was that shift? I have very few regrets. I had a wonderful career, and uh, I... If there's one thing that I might have done over, it was it would be to stay in the creative department longer and not move into agency management as young. My creative career was not what I would like it to have been. I did some good work, sure, but I didn't do anything that was terribly brilliant. And I wish I had. And you know, the the fantasy I tell myself was is that if I had stayed in it longer. I could have done more if I wasn't worried about, you know, revenue and HR and paper clips and all that crap. (laughs) I totally get it. Do you think you were a better creative director or a better agency leader? I think I was mediocre at both. (laughs) (laughs) As far as agency leader goes, I'm really not such a good business guy. I had a wonderful chief financial officer who really ran the business part of the business for me. And, you know, once a month we'd get together and I'd say, how are the numbers? And sure. he'd say, the numbers look good. I said, okay, thanks. Yeah. And that would be our, that would be our monthly financial meeting. So, you know, the key is to find good people. If sure. you have good people, 
the agency business isn't that tough. If you have mediocre people, it's a nightmare. Sure. And one great person is worth 20 mediocrities. And the great, the great people are so hard to find. And once you find them, they're hard to keep. And they're a pain in the ass because they know they're good. And, yeah. But somehow you have to find a way to do that because without great people, you're always fighting from behind. I and, 100% agree. And, I've always it, said that I've built my career on the backs of other people. You know, you just find their creative inspiration and their spark and you fuel that. You talk yeah. a lot about that in your books. What defines a great creative to you? Because you said you only come across a few in your career. Yeah, yeah. great creative people are, you know, there's no commonality. Some Mm -hmm. of them are a real pain in the ass. Some of them are the most joyful people you'll ever meet. But it's talent. That's what it is. It's not, you know, I know a lot of very creative people who are not talented. But they think they're creative. You know, they have Mm -hmm. ideas and the ideas stink. And the funny thing is talented people tend to be talented in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. Like talented uh, musicians tend to be funny also. Right. Talented writers tend to be intelligent. The, the smartest people, the, the people who I love to listen to most talk, who I think are the most intelligent people, are comedy writers. Sure. Those, they're brilliant people. I love to listen to them talk. So talent, sadly, it's it's not uh, distributed equally. So what makes a great creative person? Talent. You know it when you see it. You know? I agree. I, I totally know what you mean by that. Let me ask you about Type A Group then. So when you left the agency world and you know you said it was about eight years ago, you've done a lot of writings, speaking. I love how you call yourself the chief aggregator. What do you say, chief aggravation officer? Obviously, I get that having heard you speak. I've sat in rooms with people who are super uncomfortable because you were challenging all the things we do every day. Um, What was it that spurred you to go, you know what? I'm going to be the counter to everything we say and do in this business. It didn't start out that way. It's a, you know, type A group started when the former president of my agency, who had left the agency earlier, and then I left. And we decided to get together and do something. And then she got an offer to be president of an online startup. So she left. And so Type A Group became me and my laptop. (laughs) And that's when I focused on writing and speaking. And I had always felt that there was a lot of stupidity in the advertising and marketing business. And I I thought that there should be another voice or another point of view about it. I thought I have nothing to lose. I'm, you know, I'm retired. I, I I don't need the money. I don't need the fame and glory. Why don't I become a pain in the ass? And, uh, and, say what I really think, because I know there are a lot of people in the advertising business who think just like me. They just can't say it because they have a job. And they, they can't, have clients. Yeah. yeah, they have clients. And they can't tell the client, you're a fucking idiot. You're no, right. we can't do that. Um, I try to be the voice of people who think differently, who are skeptical about what the advertising agency and the marketing world believes to be true. Sure. And that comes from, I'm naturally skeptical. And anyone who tells me anything, the first thing that comes to my mind is, really, how do you know that? 
Right. And and so the, to me, that's the most important question uh, in life is how do you know that? And the, the uh, advertising and marketing, they take a lot of things for granted. They listen to big uh, aristocrats, bullshit artists talk about what what's uh, you know, how they became fail, all this bullshit. And they don't ask really how, how do you know? I'm not afraid to ask that question. Yeah, we'll say more about that. So your your recent book, Advertising for Skeptics, like I said, out of the gate, you say this is a small book. I hate big books, which I loved because I was able to read it in a couple hours. And I would encourage everybody to get it because you had me roaring. But one of the things I know about you is you had spent some time in science and you sort of like contradict your expectation that people have done their research and can speak to facts with the fact that our industry is about probability and likelihood. And, and so talk about your philosophies in that space. Sure. So when I was a teacher, mostly I taught science. When I got into the advertising business, you know, my first two weeks on the job, what occurred to me is these people don't know anything. They think they know things. They have experts who tell them things, but there's no fact. There's no science. It's all bullshit. It's opinions masquerading as knowledge. Yeah. So I, I I like to think of myself as part science and part religion. The science part is what we actually know, and there are some things we actually know. And the other part, the religion part, is what we believe. Sure. And what we believe, it should be, it should come directly from what we know, but it often doesn't because we don't know that much. Right. So we so we have to pretend we have become pretenders on a lot of things. We tell clients things that sound logical, but we don't really know. And you know, the the best you can do in advertising and marketing is likelihoods and probabilities. There's no guarantees in anything you do. All you can do is increase the likelihood that something will be successful increase the probability that someone will behave in a certain way, but you can't make promises because you never know. People are really weird and it's hard to understand. You know, what's amazing to me is I have a friend who's a psychiatrist and he's spent, you know, 30 years studying people and went to college for 12 years to, to learn about people. And he tells me, you know, a lot of human behavior is completely unfathomable. Yeah, we just people do think we don't know what, it, mm. but but some twenty-six-year-old uh, account planner knows. He knows <laughs> why why people behave the way they behave, right? The psychiatrists they don't know; they're having trouble figuring it out. Right. But the account planners they know. <laughs> Well, see, I hate that you make fun of account planners in your book because I wanted to be an account planner my whole career, went up to J. Walter Thompson, sat with the account planners, fell in love with them because they were hanging out with Harley Davidson people in bars, right? Like, that's what I wanted to do for my life. And you claim this is lost on people, all of these insights, all these briefs you're writing, planners. What do you say about that? There's nothing wrong with the idea of planners. Okay. Nothing. What's wrong is there are so many fakers. There are so many people who don't know shit, who pretend they know stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they come up with these, you, you know, you have to come up with some grand insight. Sure. If you're, if you're a planner. But very often, there are no grand insights to be had. Yeah. yeah. Why, why do I drink Pepsi instead of Coke? I don't know. How the hell are you going to know? <laughs> well, I uh, think I, the greatest planners are creative. 
I think they find the creative way to take the idea and turn it on its head and say, I don't care what the research says. We're going to do the opposite of that. You know, you know, I come from the strategy side of the business, the account side of the business. And and what's hard for you as an agency leader is when you tell people you run an agency, they naturally think you're creative. And it's like, no, that's not me, you know, but I know what lane I, how to collaborate with creative, I think is kind of what you have to learn. Well, the the strategy part of the business is very important, mm-hmm. but nobody gets to read the strategy. All they see are the ads. And if yeah. the ads are shitty, it doesn't matter what the strategy says because nobody's going to pay attention to it. I'm glad I'm not a, a strategist because it doesn't matter what my strategy is if the creative people screw it up. I could work, I could come up with the most brilliant strategy. I guarantee you, you take the same strategy and you give it to someone at agency A and it'll be a piece of shit. You <laughs> give the same strategy to someone at agency B and it, it, they'll they'll do a brilliant ad. Absolutely. And, and that's what I, my creative that, director says all the time. She says, the only thing that you have to differentiate is the idea. I think I shared with you, Bob, in preparation for today that we are a primarily B2B heavy industry customer experience agency, right? So yep. all of this jargon around journey mapping and data and automation, like that's my world every day. So when I read your chapter about my B2B dream, I wanted to cry because I literally think those are the things I say every day of my life. But at, at the end of the day, it still has to be about the creative idea. And I find myself fighting that uphill battle all the time. So what advice do you have for me as a B2B agency that's trying to sell this shit, as you would call it, <laughs> but needing to keep um, that creative at heart? My, my advice to you was don't think of yourself as a B2B agency. Think okay. of yourself as a creative agency. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it doesn't matter who the target market is. A great idea is a great idea. And a mediocre idea is a mediocre idea. A very interesting study that was released about two weeks ago. It's an Australian organization that is affiliated with one of the colleges in Australia. Byron Sharp is a brilliant guy, and he actually applies science to advertising Hmm. and actually can show you how brands grow and why they grow. And anyway... They, uh, one of the lead people at the Institute named Jenny Romaniuk mm-hmm. released a study that she did along with the uh, head B2B people at um, LinkedIn. Okay. And the study indicated that what's true in consumer advertising is also true in B2B advertising, which is that the finer and finer and precision targeting does not work. That you have to speak to everyone in your category. Mm. And all this precision targeting is, in their words, quote, counterproductive. Right, right. So the the same skills that you, you would use in consumer advertising you should mm. be using, in my opinion, yeah, you yeah. should be using in B2B advertising. And those skills are, number one, creativity. Yeah. Number two, strategy. And yeah. number three, speak to as many people as you can. Yeah. And, and 
you know, whatever, quote, mass media means in the B2B world, <laughs> that's how you should approach it. Yeah. Well, I appreciated the insight in your book that talked about how, you know, we, we try so hard to get so granular down to all of this data science, when at the end of the day, it's really those aggregate insights that should drive that creative direction. Now, I can look at some of the programs that we're running that are hyper-personalized, 14,000 variations of an email, and you do see a lift, you know, but you, then you have to ask yourself, is that just because they were doing really crappy things beforehand? So I think there's a trade-off there in terms of yeah, budget well. and value. Like I said, it's likelihoods and probabilities. Yep. And and your probability of being successful and your likelihood of being successful is related to the number of people you talk to. Sure. The more people you can reach, yeah. the more likely you are to be successful. You and, talk about the, uh, yeah. the fame game, right? It's the brands yes. that can spend the money or say more about that. Fame is a monstrously powerful power in in marketing. Mm -hmm. If you're famous, you have a monstrous advantage over competitors who are not famous. Mm -hmm. And there are many ways to become famous. You can become famous because, you know, the press falls in love with you, like uh, uh, Tesla and... Uh, you can become famous because you do brilliant public relations or you can become famous because of advertising. Advertising is the most expensive way to become mm -hmm. famous, but it's the most reliable way to become famous because you can buy your way into it. Yeah. Now, does, does fame guarantee success? No, but fame makes success much more probable. Yeah. And we don't realize the effect that fame has. You know, if someone famous calls you, you're likely to return the call. Mm -hmm. Someone famous calls you, wants to buy you a drink, you're going to go out to a drink with her or him. Right. Someone famous calls you, wants to be on your board. Yeah, come on my board. Those are strengths that you can't find otherwise. And we ignore it. The, the, the marketing and advertising industries, they, they get so granular in what they're trying to achieve, they forget the big picture. The, the one thing that's most likely to make you successful is fame. And if sure. you can achieve fame, your chances of success are way higher than if you're unknown. Bob, you have a bit of a passion for media. Tell me about that and how that came to life for, you know, w when you think creative and media in those intersections. Um, yeah. You do a lot of speaking on that now, which is, you know, surprising given your background, I guess. Yeah, it's bizarre because I actually know nothing about media, but I, um, I think I have a perspective on it that needs to be aired. And that is, I think the media industry is going in the wrong direction. All this hyper-personalization is not creating brilliantly strong brands. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at all the worldwide, you know, very successful, the McDonald's, the mm -hmm. Nikes, the Apples, the Budweiser's, mm -hmm. the Fords, the Toyotas, the, they were all built on mass market advertising. None of them were right. built on one-to-one -one personalized advertising. Yeah. And, and yet, somehow, we've gotten the idea that the one-to-one -one personalized advertising is more potent than mass market advertising. Right. And I, I don't know where that's come from. There, there's not an ounce that I can find of proof for that. 
Not an ounce. I well, can't find it you anywhere. Do, you do acknowledge in your book, though, that some very bottom of the funnel product marketing strategies for B2B, like maybe it makes more sense there to get super niche and targeted and chase the click. Yeah. Um, there are certain kinds of direct response okay. advertising things for which uh, one-to-one personalized advertising may be more effective. Okay. And I, I want to talk about that in a second. But before I get to that, the important thing to note is that in the advertising industry, there are two lineages of advertising, okay. two genealogies. The first lineage is brand advertising, the kind of advertising we are familiar with from the Coca-Colas and the Apples and the Nikes and, and those kind of people. Sure. And that is generally high quality advertising. The second lineage is the direct response lineage. Okay. And that is, it used to be click this coupon and send it in, dial this 800 number, and now it's click here now. Right. And this is the crappy kind of advertising. <laughs> It's not all crappy, but it's mostly, it's, it's highly crappy. Right. And it's been that way forever. The problem is that this lineage, the click here now lineage of advertising has taken over. Mm. And, and online advertising, which is now more than 50% of all advertising, is very, very much the click here now kind of advertising. Right. And, and this has... This has harmed the, the uh, advertising industry tremendously, I think. I think people hate advertising yes. more than ever. It, advertising was always a minor annoyance. Now, yeah. now it's a real it's a pain major. in the ass. It's yeah. a major annoyance. And um, it's also dangerous. And that's, that's the big thing that I'm, uh, that I'm working on now, is that yeah. all this tracking of individuals yeah. Yeah. online is a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous for 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 people individually, and it's dangerous for society. It is. It has caused enormous problems. People don't realize how much information is being collected about them and how it is being used to influence their behaviors. Sure. It's, it's very, as a matter of fact, earlier this week, I was asked to speak to a group of uh, members of parliament in the UK on this subject. And I did that earlier this week and they are studying some possible uh, regulations to protect kids from being tracked yeah. by, data, by data vampires. And um, this is a very important issue, I think. And I'm hoping that here in the States, we're going to start to wake up and sure. realize how dangerous it is. So I, I read that speech because I saw you posted on LinkedIn. And it's cool that you're going to bat for such an important cause. I think my question is, how do, you, how do we live with ourselves as marketers, knowing that these are the things we're selling every day? You know, targeted paid social, automation. Um, you talk about programmatic and the fraud in that interest industry, you know. Um, I don't understand it all. I have experts that do. Um, but yet I'm building a business on this, you know. And so when you speak in front of advertisers like this and they have these horrible feelings like, Bob, don't say the things, right? Don't say that in front of our audience. How do you reconcile all that as a leader in this industry? 
Well, I'm not sure I'm a leader in the industry. I'm a pain in the ass in the industry, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't reconcile it. I, I think it's very clear. I yeah. think it, what we're doing is very clearly wrong okay. and very clearly needs to be addressed. And I'm shocked at the irresponsibility of the leader, so-called leaders of our industry, the heads of the four A's, the heads of the ANA, the head of the uh, the heads of the IAB, who don't—they have fought every single regulation trying to protect consumers. They have fought them, mm. and it is—it's a—it's a stain on our industry that the. Um, that the leaders of the trade associations and the leaders of the big uh, agency networks have not stepped up and said what they all know. You know, nobody, nobody's being fooled by this. Yeah. Everyone knows what the fuck is going on, <laughs> but, but they're just afraid to say something. If there's like a conspiracy of silence. Sure. That's all. Let's not make any noise about this. And it's very dangerous. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. I told you my mom called what I do creepy, right? She's like, wait, yes. you get those Facebook ads following me? But let me ask you yeah. this. Yeah. In terms of my integrity and how I live with myself, do you believe that if you've done your due diligence in terms of laying out the data privacy laws and someone opts in to share their information with you, um, then then you've you've done your job? Or is yes, there still if, a fuzzy if, line in if, there? If they opt in and they understand what they're opting into, that's yes. where we play games. We make it so complicated. You know, uh, you know, you go to a website and it says, do you want to allow cookies or not allow cookies? And then, then you say not allow. Then it says, but if you don't let them, and by the time you're through with it, you want to get to the website, you're fed up and you go, okay, allow. Right. And, and, and you press allow <laughs> sure. and uh, you don't know what you're allowing. Right, right, right. right. And so um, it's bullshit. <laughs> it, 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 it's, um, it's trying to confuse people, it, it, you know, blinding people with science, confusing Absolutely. the hell out of them. And yeah. you can tell that, you know how you can tell it's bullshit? Because um, Apple just came out a few weeks ago with their new uh, mobile operating system mm -hmm. in which you, ha you have to, instead of, uh, instead of having to opt out of tracking, you have to opt into tracking. And mm -hmm. the first few weeks of results of that are showing that only like 5% of the people are opting into tracking. Nobody wants to be tracked. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants it. But we're forcing them into tracking by making it too complicated for them to opt out of tracking. Yeah. And that's, that's what, you know, if we're going to do this right, as you just said, Misty, tracking should be an opt-in and it should be based on knowledge, not on trickery. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, so that's my point. Well, I love that you're so adamant about it and I love that you stand for something. So um, I am gonna take that with words of wisdom. I do want to switch gears just slightly because I've been so impressed with how you've built your brand 
So uh, as I think I shared with you, this is sort of a side project of mine of like, how do you write a book and build a platform around what you stand for? And you talk in your book about the importance of social media and how hard that is, you know, to find uh, that space. So tell us more about some of your philosophies there. I will. Building a brand is not something you do directly. Building a brand is done indirect. It's a byproduct Mm. of doing other things well. Building building a brand, it's like uh, having a happy marriage. Mm -hmm. You don't have a happy marriage by trying to have a happy marriage. You have a happy marriage by being nice to each other and doing things well, and then you wind up with a happy marriage. If you try to have a happy marriage, you're sure to be talking to lawyers in a few years. I guarantee it. And um, and it's... uh, so what to build a brand, you do other things well. You either do advertising well or you write books well or you speak well or you. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then you will create a, a successful brand. That's my opinion on it. Yeah. Yeah. Social media, in my opinion, has been an enormous disappointment. And all the social media platforms have become paid advertising platforms. Absolutely, They're not social media. And social media marketing has become a joke. Social media marketing has evolved into traditional paid advertising. Now, some people do social media well. And I, I, I do social media very well. And I was never trained in it. I, I didn't intend, you know, I, I didn't set out to be a social media person. But very few people think about it. Every company, every person, every organization every, in the world has a social media presence. And how many of them actually create success? One in 10,000? The rest of them just sit there. You know how many blogs there are that are sitting around with no one reading them and Right. Podcasts with nobody listening. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that you said you started your brand really with like one amazing speech and sort of built it from there. And I think to to do social media well, you have to show up authentically and be who you are. And I don't know how to do that. You know, it's something I'm struggling with, but you have to be sort of fearless too. Whatever you put out there, you better be ready to engage in the conversation. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to symantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. I want to ask... Um, Secrets of success. And I'm not talking about the the ad- advice that you give in your book that's all about advertising. Yeah. I'm talking about like the real good stuff. Like when you look yeah. back at your career, what are the two or three things that you're like, these are my core truths to live by, you know, this is my measuring stick? By far, the biggest factor is luck. The other thing is I have a bad combination of being a perfectionist 
and very and being very impatient. Mm-hmm. So I want it perfect, but I want it now. Yeah. And that's a bad combination, but that has you know, if I if I have something that I need to do, I'm not going to go to sleep until it's done and until I'm satisfied that it's done right. And that's uh, that's a personality trait that was very long. It took a long time for me to develop that first 25 years of my life. I was very irresponsible. But when I got my first advertising job, all of a sudden I'm working in Manhattan in uh on Park Avenue in the big bill, I said, man, this is fucking cool. Right. I like this. I am not going to screw this up. That's awesome. And so I flipped from being a completely irresponsible to being a complete type A. And I don't know how that happened, but however it happened, that, that would be the other aspect of, of my life that I think was p- partly responsible for success. You know what? I so appreciate that, Bob. I'm very similar, as you can probably imagine. And it took me a long time to realize because my entire life people say, Misty, don't be so goal oriented. Just relax, chill out, you know, and you come to this place where you're like, screw you. I'm going to, this feels good to me. I'm going to keep doing this. It's worked so far. I'm going to be me. Success is a very highly underrated. Success (laughs) is a wonderful thing. I love it. I'm not a terribly materialistic person, but I do like, I enjoyed being successful. It was fun. Sure. It is fun. And mm-hmm. I had a similar experience early in my career. I remember got sent out to a trade show in Las Vegas and I'm just in the hotel room going, how did I get here? You know? And so our, our industry affords us a lot of really amazing opportunities. Tell me about a failure or a regret. Oh, I mean, that's a hard yeah. question for me because I'm a natural learner and it's really hard for yeah. me not to, to look at something negatively. But do you have one? I do. I have a number of regrets. <laughs> uh, it's funny, your accomplishments never keep you up at night. It's only your regrets that keep yeah. you up at night. It's yeah. like when you get those, you get the sweats. Why did I do that? Why did I say right. that? I fired someone who should not have been fired. Hmm. And I was pressured into firing this person by people who were above me. And the only reason he was fired was that he wasn't good casting. He was too old, you know. It was a terrible thing, and I've regretted it from the moment I did it. I don't know how many years ago, 30 years ago, I still regret it today. Mm. And it's the one thing that if I could change in my career, I would change. One of the things that is, I don't think people on staff realize how much weight there is on your shoulders when you're running an agency. If you say the wrong thing to a client, you're going to lose the client and 10 people are going to get fired. And it's not going to be you. When I was an agency CEO was, what if I say the wrong? I can't really say what's on my mind to this client because if I do, there's a likelihood we're going to get fired and 10 or 15 or 20 people are going to lose their jobs and it's going to be my fault. Yeah, And that, that's a terrible burden to live with. And when I left the agency business, one of the weights that was lifted off my shoulder was, now I'm only responsible for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I say something stupid, I'll pay the penalty, not other people. Yeah. And uh, I don't mind that. But that's why I think you're so refreshing, Bob, is because when I learned 
And actually, Mike Rowe taught me this. I was interviewed, he was my very first interview ever on this podcast. He said, Misty, if you ever show up and you feel awkward in front of a group of people, he goes, just name it, just say it, just get it on the table, you know? And I think that that's what you bring. And I think that there's actually been a cultural shift in the agency world, whereas before you didn't know what you can say. Now I just say what I think, because you know what? If the client doesn't want to work with me, we're probably not that good of a fit for each other anyway. So, but I feel you there. There's no right or wrong in leading a company. And I think- the staff doesn't always realize that we don't know what we're doing either as leaders. There, you <laughs> oh, know. they know that. They know that. There's one thing they know. They know how screwed up we are. I always thought my <laughs> leaders had it all figured out, you know, but now we just say, we don't know. We're just doing the best we can, trying to make sense of things. So, yeah. all right. I'll ask you my last question that I ask everybody. What is a question that you are struggling with that you would love some advice from others? Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with what to do about the horrifying amount of of data vampire surveillance that's going on. What can I do as an individual? I have been writing about this for 10 years and I haven't done a thing other than whine about it. And I'm trying to figure out what I can do that will be more effective than whining. If any of your listeners have some ideas, please let me know, because uh, I've been working on this for several months now. And I I think I have a, a small group of people. We're working together. We're trying to come up with some way to influence brands and media to be more responsible. But so far, it's been an uphill battle. Sure. Well, I think we all reached the point in our careers where we, we know we're leaving a legacy and we want to make an impact. And so you're certainly doing that through your efforts. So I will pass that question along. Hopefully we'll get some feedback for you. But Bob, thank you again. This was such an honor. I, you know, there's some people who accept my my invitation and I'm, I'm literally floored that they're going to spend time with me. And uh, you are definitely one of those people. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Misty. It's been a pleasure. favorite thing about getting to know Bob thus far is realizing just how honest he is. I love how he says what he knows and what he doesn't know, and it's just refreshing to talk to someone who doesn't feel the need to act like they know it all. Unfortunately, talking to him made me realize how much I myself need to ensure I'm really doing my homework when talking about digital CX, B2B marketing, all the things we think we're experts at every day. It's true, there's real facts and data behind what we're saying, and we really need to do our homework. If you wanna get in touch with Bob, I encourage you to follow him on LinkedIn or simply go to bobhoffmanswebsite.com. Pretty easy to remember. For now, please continue to listen to all episodes of season four of Marketing Sweats, download and subscribe, and leave us a review. I can't wait to talk again soon, friends. Good luck with all tasks.